Welcome back to the What's Your One More podcast. Today, I've got one of my standing co-hosts, Daniel Howerson. Great to have you back in the studio here, my friend. I'm ready to roll, man. Yeah, man, it's been a little bit, so I'm glad you're back. And today, we're tackling, you know, what Alex and I call like our Super Bowl of information, which is an inflationary reading. It's so nerdy to say it that way, but the reality is the implications of these readings were all hanging on by the thread as they come out. And for our audience, you know, we're in our 54th episode right now, and we're super stoked about it, um, but we have tackled this topic topic quite a bit. But I think one of the things that uh, some of the comments we got back on YouTube from some of the audience was, you know, the more redundant, the better to digest this. So I kind of wanted to kick this one off as we get into it to talk about the PCE data. And uh, and again, uh, you know, Daniel, you're, you, you're glued to this too, being in the industry that you're in. But let's talk about what this means, what it actually is. It's the personal consu- personal uh, consumer expenditures. And so that's one of the three forms of inflation and happens to be the Federal Reserve's favorite form of inflation. But let's talk about it. how often does it come out, Daniel? How often do we get one of these? We get the PCE once a month. So we get it once a month. And, yep. you know, it's not like it comes out on the 20th or the 28th. It happens to be, you know, in the fourth week of the month, we get it when it comes out. Um, and then so what does it measure? Like we know that CPI measures what the consumer is feeling when they go to the grocery store. But what is PCE measuring? The PCE is is the Fed's preferred uh, measure of inflation because it's measuring consumer spending. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and you really get a good idea of, of the psychology of the consumer. Correct. Which is really what the Feds are looking at when they make policy. What is, what is the consumer doing right now? Right. Um, so that's really what PCE measures. And uh, it's a little bit different than the other uh, components. You know, the CPI is... Inflation as a whole, not necessarily consumers' spending habits. Uh, and then the, per, the producer price index is, is measuring the opposite side of that. What are the costs on the uh, production of goods, you know? Okay. Um, so that's, those are the three. Uh, those are the three major forms of inflation. Correct. That we get. And so and they're measured over a time frame. So what time frame is this one measured over? They it's just came 12, 12 months. So 12 we months. get the year-over-year changes. Um, you know, in inflation when we get these reports. And it's it's looking backwards, right? So the report we just got for April, and, and this just came out Friday. Today's Monday, May 1st. This came out April 28th. Um, so this is measuring the inflationary reading from the month of March. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Well, if they could look 12 months forward, they'd solve a lot of our problems here, <laughs> That's so. true. Yeah. yeah. If there was some way we could just possibly look at what's going on real time forward just a little bit, we could probably make some better decisions here instead of this whole, you know, looking from behind, like the rear view, driving a car through a rear view mirror, as Barry says. So, you know, why, why is it, as we're going through this, why? is it we follow this report? And just like every other inflation, there's a core and then there's an overall reading. But why do we follow this report so much, besides it being the federal, Fed's favorite form of inflation? Well, I mean, like I said uh, a little bit ago, it, it's really tracking what the consumer is doing. And um, I think that that look into how consumers are behaving is is what the Feds are going to point to for policy. Uh, but it also it's also looking at incomes or incomes going up as well, yep. which is a hot button for the feds right now. Part of inflation is controlling the cost of of goods, but also uh, our wages rising considerably. That's generally a sign if wages are rising considerably that that they're having to rise to keep up with the cost of goods. So, yeah. and I think it's important to point out, like as as wages go up, that's okay. Like we want people's wages to go up. You just don't have to spend it at the rate in which it's going up. And that's what's happening is that people are spending what they're making. They're not getting to save that additional money that they're making because Correct. they're being squeezed out now by some of these prices. Yeah. And I think the important thing when you talk about wage growth, you know, wage growth is not a indicator of inflation. It's a byproduct of inflation. Correct. So that's another component of when we're looking at that or when the feds are looking at that, mm-hmm. you know, they're taking that to, to mean, okay, well, 
inflation is still an issue. In, you know, incomes are having to go up to account for that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I think, but I think the consumer behavior is really the the primary reason that the Fed say this is our preferred measure of inflation because we need to know what the consumer is doing. One hundred percent. So, the Fed measures this. So, obviously, they have a target rate. The target rates they want to be at is two percent. That's the comfort level of inflation, and and that's one of their primary policy stance right now. Is hey, listen, we the Federal Reserve are increasing rates. We are we are putting more tightening in the credit market because we need to see this two percent. We need to get there, and they're fighting a battle. Um, they are they are chipping away at it, but there's still more to go because the current reading came in at four point two percent year over year. Um, and so, you know, the core reading came in a little bit higher. We'll get into that and why that came out higher. It actually came in at 4.6 year over year. And the difference between core and, and, and overall is the removing of energy and food. And so the Fed doesn't look at that because they think those are the two most volatile uh, spikes in the reading, if you may. But actually, in this case, when you remove them, the core actually goes up. Correct. And that's not the battle they want to see but they're winning. They want to see it actually come down a little bit. It shouldn't go up. And so that's usually like a that's a that's a flashing indicator. You're probably going to see another rate hike here this week because the Federal Reserve meets this week. I would say that that's probably a, a telltale sign. Yeah, and yeah. if you just look at the headline, you know, the PCE went down from 5.1 to 4.2%, a huge move, almost mm-hmm. a full percentage point lower. So you look at the headline and say, well, they got to be pretty pleased with that. Well, not so fast. You look at the core and uh, it went up, you know, uh, actually it went down from 4.7 to 4.6, excuse me. They anticipated 4.5. The reason they didn't get 4.5 is because they made a revision to the previous month, uh, which moved that up to 4.6. But so the feds are looking at that and saying, okay, the things that we can't control are getting considerably better. The things (laughs) that we can control aren't getting better as correct. quickly as we would like. That's so that correct. is why we say, even though you see this this big headline move almost a full percentage point lower, yep. we're still going to probably see a, a rate increase because they're not seeing it at, at the level of the things that they can control. And there's a high argument that's being made on Wall Street, on almost every channel that you're looking at now. You shot me a real over the weekend. Now we've got hedge fund managers making the same argument that, quite frankly, you, me, and Alex have been talking about for quite some time, and that's that this is huge lag in the data, right? We're looking at lagging data and the shelter cost, which is a large component. It's a housing component. In this yep. particular in this particular reading, it makes up 16% of the overall, 18% of the core reading, and unlike CPI where it's over 40 it still makes a huge portion in both the readings, but there's this lagging component of the rent schedules, and there's the lagging components of of how they kind of get this data. And unfortunately, what's happened is they're they're treating the medicine, if you may, they're applying to the situation, is they're treating it now for lagging data. And that's one of the biggest concerns. Is so that treatment is the raising of interest rates, right? And it appears we're going to have another raise coming in from the Federal Reserve again. And there's a lot of people that are like, okay, hit it with a quarter, and then back off, and let's see what happens. That's what a lot of people are asking for. The question is, is the Federal Reserve have the patience to do that and the fortitude to do that and the insight to do it? But let's talk a little bit about the shelter costs for just a minute because it's different on the PCE side than it is on the CPI side. It's vastly different because on the CPI side, we're talking about owner's equivalent of rent. We're talking about um, you know, the surveys that get done and we're talking about housing costs on this side, this is straight reporting of rents. And then also from the owner's equivalent of rent as well, but also coming from the housing components provided from like reports outside of the GDP. That's how they come up with this data that they use in here. Yep. And it does have a lower weight, but it is, it is an important role. 
one of the bigger things that you spoke about earlier that I liked was that the consumer spending habits. And you're looking at in this report, you can see where the consumers are spending their money and what sector they're spending it in. And the reason that's important is because if the economy is doing well, people are probably going to spend more money and they'll probably spend more money on luxury items, you know, that you normally wouldn't have the monetary means to do. If the economy is not doing as well, you should see some constriction in those sectors. And that's what this report shows. That's what, that's what we're looking at when we take a look at this. So in the consumer spending, uh, in the consumer spending report side of things, one of the things that we like to take a look at here, and we're going to do a little bit of a deep dive here, is in the credit spending, what we call consumer loans credit card section. This is kind of an alarming number that we're starting to see. Absolutely. Well, and, and before we get into that, I think what's important to note here is PCE is coming down, right? Which mm -hmm. presumably means people are spending less than they were before. However, credit card debt is going up. So they're spending less, but they're still not able to quote unquote make ends meet because the, the total amount of debt they're carrying is higher, which means they're either still spending on things that maybe they could cut out of their budget and they're not willing to do that at this time, or prices are high enough where even if they've cut their spending back yeah. to eliminate those things, then they don't necessarily have enough money to pay for all of that every month, and they're having to finance some of that on credit cards. So, um, so from from a cons from consumer spending habits, I think that that is the big takeaway here is you're seeing credit card debt continue to go up, savings rate continue to go down, even though people are spending less, we're not seeing that improve, which is what you would hope would be the case. If people are spending less, hopefully they're saving more, but that's not happening. Yeah. No, I mean, it, it, this is this is also a byproduct of inflation. You know, you said that earlier, but as these numbers go up and in inflation, even as it's starting to come down, right? If the target rate's 2% and we're talking about 4.2%, you're still doubling your target rate. You're not, you're not where you need to be. And you've got to somehow cut this in half to get down to the comfortable level that the Federal Reserve is comfortable at. And so are the consumers. The challenge with inflation is though, as items go up, they don't typically come back down. They level off, but they don't come back down. And so there's a lot of price pressure that's been put on the consumer right now, which is also probably adding to some of this credit card debt we're getting ready to talk about. You're absolutely right. I mean, if you're a if you're a business and you increase your prices and there are still people willing to pay that price, you're not going to come off of that price now that you realize that there are people that are willing to pay that price. So, right. you know, in terms of, of prices being sticky, I think that's, that's important to note. And, and the other thing is, you know, not to use a sports analogy, but, you know, they say it's easy to go from bad to good. It's hard to go from good to great. Kind of loosely applying that analogy here, getting inflation from 9% to 5% was probably the easy part. You know, getting inflation to go from where we're at now on the, the PCE, 4.2 to 2, that's probably a much longer move than getting it off of the, the highs. Correct. Um, with the brunt of the rate hikes already having happened. So, you know, the move to get it back down to that target, I think, is going to take much longer than it took to cut it in half, essentially. Yeah. yeah. So it's, you know, a lot of people make the argument that if it takes this long to get up, it's going to take twice as long to bring it back down. Yep. And so that's kind of the concept here. Now, it's interesting, though, as we dive into this credit card data, you know, and I think these are some signals that are flashing very loud in the consumer credit market. Um, depending who you buy into, Ray Diallo, Jamie Dimon, you know, Warren Buffett, the list goes on and on again. A lot of people are in agreement that there is a storm brewing in the consumer credit market. And, you know, we've heard them say it. And so what we did here on our podcast, we said, let's, let's do a deep dive into that storm. Let's go into the eye of the hurricane and find out exactly what the heck they're talking about. And we kind of did that. And the first place we started was with the Federal Reserve. And we said, okay, let's take a look at what they've got on their consumer data that they're producing. 
we're almost at a billion dollars, excuse me, a trillion dollars, one trillion dollars in credit card debt as a society. Like you, that, you think about that number for a minute, a well, trillion dollars. Well, we were just talking about this before the meeting. They, they update those numbers weekly on the graph that, that we pulled from the Federal Reserve. And ironically enough, they haven't updated that since 419 when we were at 983 billion. Right. So it kind of makes you think, uh, not, not to say there's any manipulation in play, but, but it's just kind of a strange thing that you're not seeing the, uh, the, the 26th, yeah. you know, how close are we inching to that trillion? Yeah, because they updated on the 12th, the 5th, the 29th, the 22nd. Right. You see the seven day every day, but right. I hear they haven't touched it since the 19th. Right. Very interesting. Right. You made a joke earlier. They're having to, they're having to fix one of the axis there so to get it over the trillion dollars. System, upgra- system upgrading <laughs> yeah, to, system get, upgrade. to get to that number. So that's the first sign that's flashing. We take a look at that. The second sign that's flashing on here that we want to take a look at is that less than half of that debt is being paid in full each month which means we are carrying a balance of over $500 million or billion dollars, excuse me, $500 billion. I can't get my head around that number. $500 billion of revolving debt at an interest rate on average of 20%. Yikes. In some cases, that's 27%. You know, and and it's crazy because that is a dangerous, that's a dangerous place to be. And the reason I say that was if we travel back to 2006, 2007, you know, one thing I can tell you being in the business during that time, you had a very similar situation. You had a lot of people carrying a high balance of revolving, a combination of credit cards and home equity lines. And you had a lot of limits that weren't being reached. For example, you may have had a credit card that had $20,000 limit, but you only had $10,000 on that credit card, right? And you had room for emergency or you had room in case you needed it. And then what happened was, in 2008, somewhere in that second quarter, third quarter of 2008, all of those consumers experienced something that happened when the creditors came and they said, we're going to cut those limits down. In this case, we're going to go from 20000 to, to to 15 or 12 and we're going to put a cap on that because we're going to limit the exposure and the risk because we see a trend happening here. We see more people putting stuff on credit cards, not paying them off. And guess what happens if you default on a credit card? Where's your credit? Yeah, but... Is there any repossession of the items that you bought? Well, you're right. Yeah, there's no. no there's no asset securing that. What that are you going to do? You're going to go take the food off the table that people bought? No. Yep. There's no. There's yep. no re. There's no reaffirming the assets or the food or the goods that were bought on that. Well, that's well documented. People know that. So if you're if you're a creditor, you've got to limit your risk on that. So what yep. did they do in 2008? And we've got a graph. We'll put it in the show here. It was a cliff. I mean, that drop-off went way down, almost about 35%. And it took significant time to get back. Well, guess what? We're actually at higher limits now. And you could argue there's more population. That's why you have more limits, right? There are more people of age that can have credit cards. But it's nearly 150% higher than it was during that time I'm referring to. And the balances on those credit cards are higher as well. Well, let's unpack that a little bit. So let's talk first and foremost, how does this impact people that are struggling? So if you're having trouble making ends meet and you're, you're financing a little bit of those monthly purchases on the credit card mm-hmm. and you're at or approaching the, ba- the limit and then the credit limit is cut off, let's, let's say they just stop it and say you can't go any higher. Uh, well, now you've got to change your lifestyle quickly because you're funding part of your lifestyle on that. Or let's say it's at the limit and maybe you're no longer actively charging more, but the interest rate at 20%, your minimum payment is not is not uh, sufficient to lower the balance. So the right. balance could still be increasing, which means that minimum payment's going to go up. 
Um, so for the people that are, that are struggling, that's how it impacts that. But let's also talk about how this impacts people that aren't struggling, people that responsibly are using credit. Because what I'm hearing is this affects everybody. This isn't just going to affect the people, like a select group. Absolutely. This is an overall effect. I love look, how you're breaking this down. You start Sorry looking at companies that are that are using credit responsibly. Maybe they've mm -hmm. got credit lines they use to, to make acquisitions, buy inventory. Yep. Uh, facilitate normal every, everyday yep. business transactions. Well, what if their credit line gets cut in half? Now they don't have the capacity to run their business in the way that they're seeing fit. Even if Correct. they're paying that credit line down as income comes in, receivables come in, well, now it's impacting the way that they, they run their business. The access to be able to, to get those credit lines and operate is significantly hindered. Correct. And, and, it didn't matter in 2008 when those credit lines were turned off. It didn't matter if you were a top-of-the-line credit score or a struggling credit score. There was no identifying of that. It hurt everyone, and yep. everyone felt that. Yep. So I love where you're going down this path here. And let's talk about, real quickly, touch on, on home equity loans, because what, what has happened now in the current market dynamics is you got a bunch of people at 3.5% and below on interest rates. Mm -hmm. And when it comes time to maybe want to make large purchases, do renovations, or just fund a continued lifestyle, people are turning to home equity lines of credit. Mm -hmm. And in good times, generally home equity loan home equity line um, lenders will let you go up to a max of ninety percent. So ninety percent of your home home's value, you can get a home equity line. Mm -hmm. Well, what starts to happen as the credit market tightens is that goes to eighty five. That goes to eighty you know, those those credit lines, you're not able to access those as much. So people that do have equity, maybe they're not able to access that with credit lines in the amount that they want. Right. The other component, though, is if you are using it um, in some capacity to fund your lifestyle, well, a lot of those home equity loans got frozen and, and the lenders just said, hey, you're going to repay what you owe. The functionality of using your home equity line as an active revolving line of credit is no longer something we're willing to allow. Correct. So they're going to freeze that credit line, which once again, if you're using it to fund a lifestyle, you've got to make lifestyle changes. If you're somebody that is using that home equity loan uh, for some other purpose. What if, okay, what if I have a home equity line and it's a, it's a JIC line just in case I need it, right? It's sitting there just in case. I'm not saying people do this, but let's say it is happening. You got that as a, as a security blanket or you're saying I'm using this as an investment opportunity that if I can go buy another home, uh, opportunity presents itself. I got this sitting here and I'm already set up and it's easy access. Imagine that being taken away very quickly because that's what happened in 2008, 2009. It, it was real quick, real fast. And there was no um, there was no identification of like credit. They didn't care. Again, going back to it just was across the board. It's very easy to see on the graphs similarities between that time period in this current time period right now. The only difference is we have a lot more, lot more debt out there on the consumer credit side than we had during the previous time of 08. Without a doubt. And, and being a little bit of an insider here with, with uh, while we don't necessarily facilitate home equity line transactions, mm -hmm. we have a lot of customers that ask about them. Yep. And I would say that there are, is a contingency of people that are using home equity lines of credit for what you just said as a safety net. So, Correct. You know, not having that, well, now your home's equity is completely inaccessible. Right. It's borderline useless at that point. So, you you know, you've got this 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 net worth on paper, but you can't use it. You can't mm -hmm. access it. And now you're back to, do I change my spending habits? You know, how does this impact me if I'm a responsible user of my home equity line? You, you would be uh, surprised the number of small businesses that use a home equity line. They use the revolving line as a way to conduct business operations. So there, there are a number of ways that that could that could impact 
consumer spending and, yeah. and their habits. Yeah, and that's a really good point. As we take a look at the next couple of charts, by the way, some of these charts, actually all these charts, but the one from the Federal Reserve, we got these from the New York Fed. So the New York Fed puts together a great PDF every quarter. So this is the most recent one. So this was interesting to me because one of the ways you look at potential talk about those flashing lights again. We look at early delinquencies or the transitioning of delinquencies is what it's called. So if you're transitioning a, a, a person that's now become a 30-day late, they're now in a bucket that you would call a 30-day late uh, category. They're late. They're not default. Um, or you call it derogatory at that point. You move up to a 90-day delinquent, which we're going to take a look at. That's the early signs that something's really going wrong there um, and probably, probably going to default, right? So let's take a look at these 30-day transitions by loan type. This is what's interesting here. Of all these, everything is coming down in a good way. So coming down means we're not having any 30-day lates. All bills are being paid on time. Of course, housing should be one of those. We're starting to see uh, home equity line because it's part of housing, right? Yep. And then the student loan debt is basically flat because we have a forgiveness program that's going on right now. No payments are being made. So yep. there shouldn't be anything delinquent on that, right? Yep. So, But the two that are soaring up, going up, leading the trend, are automobiles and credit cards. And what's interesting is that I didn't put this in here, but I went down further into this and found out that between the ages of 18 and 30 is where the, is leading the pack in this quote unquote, you know, late payments here. And I thought that's interesting because what's happened in the auto market recently is so many people got upside down in these trades and so many people got upside down and buying in this auto frantic world, unlike a house, traditionally speaking, a car is not going to appreciate right? So you overpay for a car and this chip shortage and all this stuff that was happening. And you traded in a car that was may have been upside down. You could be buried, you know, 10, 15 grand upside down in a car. Once you realize you're upside down and you're on a term that's seven years, in some cases, eight years long, this isn't as important to you as maybe your house. This isn't important to you as other things. When you talk about changing spending habits, this may be one of the ones I'm going to change and it may just be, come get it. Correct. You, know, you hope that doesn't happen, but there's some signs that are pointing towards that. And with the credit card debt, same thing. Yo, thank you so much for choosing us today. We're definitely not done with our podcast, but we are going to take a really short sponsor break and then we'll get right back to the show. I've been in the lending business for 20 years. I've seen many different lenders. During those 20 years, I recognized there's a difference between being an originator and an advisor. And the team at Bank of England is full of advisors. They take their time to understand your needs. They take the time to structure a mortgage for you and your family. And I cannot recommend them enough. If you're in the market to purchase a home, maybe it's a second home, maybe it's an investment property, or you're looking to refinance your current property that you live in, take a minute to work with the advisors at Bank of England Mortgage. They're a nationwide lender, and you can find your local branch at boemortgage.com, www.boemortgage.com, because it's more than loans, it's people. Thanks so much for letting us give a shout out to our sponsor. All right, now back to the podcast. Like you said, mortgage delinquencies are going to be the last thing to move because sure. obviously that's the first thing that, that people want to pay if they they have their their pick of the bills to pay. Correct. But but the other thing that we're not really talking about here is you know if you look at these charts, the student loan um, delinquencies basically goes off of a cliff to zero. Why? Because federal student loans have been in forbearance for what two years now? Yeah, quite some three time. years. Excuse me. Since COVID, so you're going on you know three years now of, of those loans being in forbearance. Well, at some point. The government's going to say, okay, well, we need to collect some revenue on these student loans, and we need people to repay those because that is a source of revenue. To the United States government. To the United States government. So if people are already having trouble with making their payments, well, what happens when 
your $50,000 worth of student loans now require a repayment when you've built, at this point, you've built a lifestyle around not paying your student loans, right? That's correct. Three years, you've built yep. a lifestyle of, I don't have to pay this. This is not something that I'm factoring into my monthly budget. Mm-hmm. So it's an interesting dynamic. And, you know, at some at some point, the, the government is going to say, okay, it's been a good ride for you student loan holders. And for those of you that are hoping for some magical forgiveness, um, you might find yourself with a little bit of a surprise when... Well, and pay, and pay no attention, excuse me, pay, pay close attention and look no further to what's going on right now. The debt ceiling is looking to be increased. And one of the ways that they're, they're coming to an agreement, if you may, is that one side of the table is using this as an opportunity to unwind some of the things that the current administration has done. And one of them is exactly what you talked about, which is get rid of the forgiveness starting immediately. And if that passes, you could see exactly what you're talking about happen here very soon. Very, very soon. And, you know, and, 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 and briefly before we move on here, when we look at that one chart with the 90-day delinquency on it, credit cards are leading the pack. It's not even close. Yeah. I mean, it is, it's literally almost at the, the 8% of credit card balances are 90-day delinquents. What that means for our audience is they haven't made a payment in the last three months on their credit It's card. more than double the next it's item. It's more than in double the next item, which is automobiles. But it's more than double that. So 90 days... So, it, and, and, you know, the way credit cards traditionally work, that if you're late 30, they don't cut you off from using it. You can still use it. Yep. If you're late on 60, as long as you make some sort of payment, they'll let you continue to use. I guess what I'm saying is even at this 90-day delinquent, I'm not so sure they've cut you off yet. And so that's another reason we're seeing this spending. And it's going back, I'll bring this all together. We're seeing a lot of spending still taking place. And we're not seeing the income that represents that. And we're also not seeing the savings rate that represents that. Because what we have seen is the savings rate in America dwindled down below pre-pandemic lows. And we now have spending at all-time highs. Those are recipes. Those are recipes for a a potential, you know, uh, not good scenario. It doesn't matter how you cut it. Yeah. You know, so when I take a look at this, how how does, you know, how, how does the good come from this? Well, I'll tell you the good. In every chart I look at, housing's darn near at zero and everything, meaning no defaults, meaning hardly any risk at all. And this is one of the things we talk about all the time is that the housing market sometimes gets lumped into this consumer spending, doom and gloom, perfect consumer storm. It has nothing to do with it. Housing is in a very good position because to your point earlier, it's going to be the one thing you pay no matter what. That's going to be the last thing you default on out of all the items that we're talking about. Yep. So absolutely. As we jump into that, so now that we kind of like really did a deep dive on that, let's back back up to the the PCE real quick because this is a sub. Uh, this is a subcategory of that. You know, why are the markets glued to this PCE right now? And when I say the markets, I mean all markets, including us. I mean, we're, you know, mortgage guys talking about PCE. Why is everyone glued to that? Well, from the mortgage standpoint, inflation is the primary driver of mortgage rates. Okay. So break we, that down for our audience. You, it, it, well, essentially, mortgage rates will directly. Uh, change based on inflation. Yep. More inflation, higher mortgage rates. Okay. Less inflation, lower mortgage rates. And the, the reality behind that is, as interest rates go up, you know, as, as inflation goes up, interest rates will go up. So they're directly proportional. One goes, the other one goes. Correct. I okay. mean, the, the correlation is nearly nearly one. Um, so that's why in the mortgage world we we care about that because that's impacting the the affordability of housing, right? Yeah. So if you're a general consumer. Your general, uh, you know, person looking to buy a home, and you want to know what rates are going to do? Would it be safe to say follow inflation? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think that if you're in tune with with when these reports come out, you can go to whatever insert financial or news source of your choice, mm-hmm. 
you'll be able to see what the headline inflation was. And if it says higher than expected, you can expect that mortgage rates went up. If it says <laughs> lower than expected, day. you can with it. expect that you maybe mortgage rates improved from that. Higher than expected. Don't call your mortgage. <laughs> yeah, not, not a good day. <laughs> call, not, not a good day, a good day, day for your mortgage rates. person. Don't call them. Uh, but, rates go lower, call them. So, you know, so in the mortgage world, we're obviously concerned with how that impacts the housing market. Mm-hmm. For the rest of the economy, I think that, that this is a continuing leading indicator of a recession. There it is. So yep. that's what I was hoping to pull out of you. So we're looking at, you know, the, the markets, Wall Street, the markets, yep. they're looking at this information saying, we're concerned there might be a recession and this impacts how we invest, uh, impacts what we think is going to happen with future earnings of these companies. And um, it's impacting, you know, the financial markets as a whole uh, because there's a lot of concern about what could happen with a recession looming. Yeah. So if you're the Federal Reserve, you've stood up in front of a podium many times, you've gone before Congress, and you've said, hey, listen, our goal, our target is 2% interest rates, excuse me, 2% inflation. Our other goal is that we are prepared to let unemployment go from three point, I think it's like 3.4 right now, to let it go, might even went to 3.6, to 5%. We're prepared to see that number go up. Those two things go to hand in hand together. You start raising short-term interest rates. I think we put 500 basis points. The Federal Reserve has jammed 500 plus basis points in this over just shy of a year, a little over a year. And in that time, you're taking away companies' abilities, right, to borrow money at a cheaper rate to expand their businesses, whether it be factories, whether it be new jobs, new products, et cetera. Because now the borrowing, the cost of borrowing that – they can't outrun it right now and make it make sense. So you don't necessarily need the employees for that. So you're decreasing new job growth, right? You're starting to see that. And we saw that in the private sector in the job reports. They actually had a 40,000 job decrease for exactly what I'm saying. Those numbers are probably going to get worse. The continuing claims are going up. Um, The initial jobs claims are going up. And we're seeing more people report to the unemployment line right now. And that's by design. Like the Federal Reserve is, is... it, not forcing it, but their policies are forcing that to happen right now. And so companies, to your point, start looking at how, you know, I got to report earnings. I got to show my shareholders I'm doing well. What's the largest cost you're going to cut? It's payroll. It's always payroll, yeah. right? So you're going to cut the payroll. And then the third thing of the Federal Reserve by doing and raising so quickly, they've applied all this pressure to banks, right? I mean, we're seeing it. We just saw it yesterday, Friday with, you know, First Republic Bank. You know, they went into receivership late Friday. JP Morgan just acquired them to late Sunday night, right? We've seen all this stuff happen and they're applying that pressure because they're raising short-term interest rates at such a high amount that banks are struggling to say, Daniel, I'll pay you X to have your money in the account just to be competitive, you know, so that that's another that's another byproduct of raising these rates. Yep. And so there's been a, there's been a lot of issues. So when the markets, that's one of the reasons why they're glued to it. And you put those factors together that we're describing. I'm going to raise rates to get inflation down. I'm probably going to force some unemployment to go up. I'm putting immense pressure on banks. It doesn't take long to think that a recession. You might actually be in one right now. You might be on the early onset of one. And the soft landing, that is gone. You know, we talk about that. The, the Fed having a soft landing, making the airplane touchdown smooth. That is off the table. We're definitely aiming for a hard landing at this point. That's with 2022 the, talk. Yeah, it's going to be a hard <laughs> landing. And the question is, you know, how 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 much are they going to do before they induce a recession, an economic recession? Because that's, that's what they're going to do, raising the rates. You know, there's a lot of really smart people that are begging them not to do any further. Like, let's let's let this see, let, let it unfold. You put 500 basis points in there so quickly. Let's let it run through the system and see what it does. And, and you know, the worry is that this week we're going to get another rate increase. 
Yeah, I think that the the big thing is you can't erase ten years of zero monetary policy in a year. You know, Correct. a problem that took a decade to create, and they want to correct it with a few rate hikes. And they've they've finally gotten the federal funds rate above the rate of inflation. So yep. uh, we're at you know we're at positive interest rates now. Whereas <laughs> you know when inter- when inflation was still higher than interest rates, we, right. we still weren't at positive interest rates. Yep. So they've at least got it there. But I mean, I think that the challenge is that, that they want to fix the problem that it took so long to create uh, and just kind of watched it happen and right. ignored the signs. And they want to try to fix that as quickly as possible. And it's just unfortunately not something that you can do as quickly as possible without creating significant ramifications. And that's kind of what they're, they're starting to see. And, you know, hopefully they start to see that and, and pause to a point where well, let me let me throw one for you here. There's actually forecast, and there's actually if you uh, the being showed right. If you take the real time shelter cost right now, and not that twelve month lagging average, you take the real time shelter cost for the PCE. You're currently at two point. I think it was two point eight inflation. One point seven. Oh, on it was the, one point seven on the year over on the year. year, over year. On the year over one point seven. For, if yep. you're using real time, thank you. Yep. So it's one point seven. We're already below the two. So what what people are, well, excuse me, what these economists and what some of these really experts are trying to bestow upon the Federal Reserve is you've already done it. Like you're yep. using old data and you're still, you're treating the medicine now for a problem that happened 12 months ago. Yep. Like we're beyond that. And so you may over-medicate the situation. Well, that's the frustration when you're looking at, um, you know, you know, the folks that are, they're super, super into this, the right. Barry, Barry Habibs of the world, the, the very smart people. It's very frustrating to be looking at this and you're seeing that shelter costs have gone down and down and down. And all they have to do is just stop and wait for that information to filter through the system. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they don't appear to have the patience to say, well, let's just wait and see because we know these shelter costs are going to come down because we we know how this works. Correct. All we have to do is just give it a little bit of time. And that unfortunately doesn't appear to be in the cards. So I think one thing that's frustrating here is we talk about they're using the 12, they're using the legging data, they're using the owner's equivalent of rent, they're using rent data from the GDP that's coming over. They could go online to Zillow, Redfin, any real estate office, you know, locally if they wanted to actually call call the offices that do property management and find out what the real-time rates are. But that data is available and readily online, and it's just not being used. It's a very antiquated way of what they're doing. Yeah, the owner's equivalent of rent is, continues to be a head-scratcher for me as as somebody in this industry, if the government called me, at least I would know what was going on. As If I had no knowledge of how this works and the government called me asking about how much I rent my house for, I'm not sure what I would tell them because I would have absolutely no clue why they were calling me <laughs> yeah. or what that means. So, you wouldn't even answer the phone, I, dude. You're right. I probably <laughs> would hang up, but I, I would have no context to be able to answer that question. Right. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm in the mortgage industry, and I couldn't tell you right now how much my house could rent for. I could give you a range that would probably— be a 40% variance, but I couldn't tell you that. And I do this every day. I, I don't right. rent properties every day, but I'm, I, I deal with housing. And, you know, part of that is, well, what areas, what areas command what rent? And I don't even know the answer to that. So why are we relying on that as our primary source of indicate of, of an indication of what shelter costs are? Right. Does it really make a whole lot of sense to your point that data is readily available? All they would have to do is think, okay, there's a better way I can get real-time data to make decisions other than uh, a survey of X number of people that's not remotely indicative of, of what rents are. So I'll throw this out there to you because I think this is important and we've talked about it before. Of the voting Federal Reserve chair people, all of them but two have been lifetime Federal Reserve 
board employees at some capacity. They have never stepped into the real line of fire and worked. Of the two that have, one of them is Jerome Powell, the fair chairman. The other one is a uh, is a lady on the board that I don't recall her name right now, but they both worked at the same hedge fund firm, if you may. And that was also the same firm that led Enron down the path that it went to. They were both there. They were both they have their name on the Enron debacle too. So they they weren't they weren't immune from that. But that's their experience. That's their experience. And, and the rest of the time it's been over at the Federal Reserve. And so when you take people that don't have the real world experience and they're trying to apply principles that are not being modified to the to the age in which they need to be updated you're going to get results sometimes that are a little outdated. And so it's one of the old, well, if it ain't broke, don't try to fix it type mentality. So the problem is it's broke. I think we're seeing that. Yeah, it's broke. We need to, we need to update some of that. So I always, I always find that interesting on there. And, and you know, and I, I, also, I also saw something the other day before we end here that Jerome Powell was on a Zoom call, like a, answering like economic briefs. Did you hear about this? With a, and, and he got pranked. No, on the no, Zoom call. So, like, this. this is uh, help me out here. President of Ukraine. What's his name? It's at the tip of my tongue here. We hear him all over the radio. Um, it's uh, it's going to dawn on me here in a minute. Charlie's not, looking it I'm up. Not, I'm not your guy for that. Okay, so you can, the guy enters the Zoom room pretending to be the president of Ukraine. Now we've all seen him on TV, and 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 he's all over the channels. For everything that's going on there, and he appears to be asking Jerome Powell questions in this Zoom link. <laughs> and he's just answering them and he's answering them pretty, pretty candid, much better than he does at the podium and conducting a conversation just to find out. Yeah. Zelensky. Thank you. Zelensky. Yeah. So president, president Kalinsky over there, you're, you're seeing it. I think it's Zelensky actually the way it's pronounced, but he, you're seeing him over there and he, he's just answering, firing off questions. And it wasn't until like February that Powell realized that's not who that was. Wow. That someone pointed out, it was like, Hey, we had someone invade our zoom link. That wasn't him. That's and you were answering all these questions. And it was just like, I don't know. Not not that I'm picking on him for anything, but it's awareness. It's another point of awareness that I'm always looking at and going, hey, man, what's really going on there? And the reality is I don't think they're very aware of what's happening right now or we wouldn't be we wouldn't be doing what we're – the Fed wouldn't be doing what they're doing right yeah, now. Yeah, you're right. They would kind of say, hey, you know what? We've done it. Because to your point, 1.7, it's already done. Yep, absolutely. It's already done. So absolutely. We're, we're, we're beating a dead horse here on this one. Well, well, and I think that, you know, obviously we've we've um, portrayed some doom and gloom here a little bit. And some of that's a little bit of frustration of, of you know, we want to see this data filter through and we don't want to see more rate hikes. But to give people some practical application here, I think that we talked about this a little bit earlier. We've talked about it before. You've got this dynamic now where you, most people's interest rates are three and a half percent below. Yep. And if you're somebody that maybe finds yourself carrying a, a bit more debt or maybe considerable more debt than you have historically, you might be thinking, okay, well, what can I do about this? And inflation's coming down, but it's not far enough to where I'm able to live the lifestyle that I want and be able to, to have money at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. And I think that people need to start looking at a little bit of what we talked about. Your home, your home's equity is accessible. And a home equity line may or may not be a good option for you. But the opportunity to consolidate your debt into a cash out refi is something that a lot of people, one, have started to look at, and two, need to start looking at. Because uh, if you trade your 3.5% for a 6.5%, that's obviously not an ideal situation, right? Yeah, it doesn't sound great, right? But we're taking debt at 20%, 10, 15, 20%, and you're consolidating that into your loan. And more importantly, you're stretching that out over a 30-year term. Yes. So you're saving money monthly. So you could free up a considerable amount of money in your monthly budget 
to allow you to continue to you know, make ends meet or continue living your lifestyle. Mm-hmm. And there's this psychological, well, I don't want to trade my three and a half for six and a half. There's validity to that, but you also have to look at what's the alternative spiraling credit card debt, you know, late payments, my credit's ruined in the event that I want to go do something in the future. Correct. Uh, this bankruptcy on the table, you know, obviously, hopefully bankruptcy is not on the table for a lot of people, but you start looking at what's the alternative and the cash out refinance is something that really, uh, I think we're going to start to see a lot more prevalent uh, for people that maybe have found themselves, they're in a little bit of trouble now, they need to figure out a solution. Cash out refi is really a good way to do that. And most importantly, just because you refinance into a higher rate doesn't mean that you have to stay at that interest rate forever. That's correct. But if you can't ever get that credit card paid down, that's a much more uh, daunting scenario, especially if you've got multiple credit cards, you've got multiple yep. accounts. It's a much more daunting scenario. So the psychological of I don't, I can't trade my three-something interest rate for a six-something interest rate to consolidate debt, well, I think it's worth looking at, can I save $1,000 a month? Can mm-hmm. I save $1,500 a month? Can I save a considerable amount of money there? And then, hey... Smart money says interest rates will come down at some point. Will it come back down to what I've got right now? Maybe not, but yep. can I consolidate that debt and then subsequently lower that payment even further in the future? You know, that's just something that to give people some actionable, what, well, what, do, I, what do I take from this? Yeah, and there's three things there that I want to reiterate. Number one, you consolidate that credit card debt. That's now tax deductible inside of your mortgage interest. Right now, you're just throwing interest away if you're not paying off your credit card monthly. And that's that's going to the wayside. Oh, by the way, you know, if people always ask us all the time, like, "Hey, where's where's a place I can park my money? Where can I make some? Where can I make more interest than what my bank's currently paying?" I always ask, "I'm like, do you have credit card debt?" And if someone says yes, I'm like, "Pay your credit card debt. You just made twenty percent. Yep. Like you just made twenty percent. Yeah, it isn't gonna get any more smart money than that. You don't need to worry about parking the money. Pay that down. Pay yourself twenty percent. You just you just outpaced everybody. Yep. The second part about that is you said earlier you can't tap your home equity line, or excuse me, sometimes you can't get to your home's equity, but now you can use it and leverage it, and you can leverage it in a situation where you're paying off this credit card debt instead of throwing away twenty percent. And by the way, a lot of people get wrapped up in the fact that it's like oh, I only have $5,000 in credit card, or oh, I only have this. That is not set to pay off in a term. And the odds are, until you stroke the check and pay it off, that may outrun your mortgage. Not $5,000, higher balance, of course, but it will outrun your mortgage. You know, if you had a $50,000 credit card or combination of credit cards, there's a high probability that's going to run at a payment much longer than your mortgage rate. And if you wait too long and you don't consolidate this debt, you might find yourself in a position where you can't. So- That's that's kind of the where where I say, take that as an opportunity to at least look into that because it's a it's a vehicle that you have right now, and it may be off the table at some point, yeah. along with just about every other alternative. Well, you know what, you bring some great points, and I know that did come off a little doom and gloom, but I think what our approach was was this: if you you can navigate any type of storm as long as you know what's coming, right? And in two thousand nine, I also was one of those people that got blindsided when my home equity line got cut off. And yep. some of my credit cards got cut off. It, it again, it had no. They they didn't. When this happened, it was it was a risk to every. It just basically cut everyone off. It was a limit of risk to everyone. So knowing that this could potentially come, how do you structure yourself around that to prevent that and insulate yourself from that happening? That's a great point. That was one of the points when we bring it up that way. So all good points, Daniel. Lots to unpack there. As always, man, it's wonderful having you back on the show here. Um, they want to hear more about Daniel Halverson. How can they reach you? Uh, you can find Bank of England uh, a couple of different ways. Visit our website, boejax.com. Give us a call at 904-992-1000. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram. Uh, reach out to us. 
even if you just have general questions, you know, yep. we want to be a resource and maybe help you navigate through some of these questions. Uh, and obviously anybody that's looking to purchase or refinance a home, you know, we certainly would love to speak with you. Yeah, man, that's great stuff. Thanks again, guys. If you like what you're hearing on the podcast, continue to leave us comments on our socials. We love bringing those up in the episode and kind of tackling those. Also subscribe on YouTube. Check us out on all platforms, Apple, Spotify, Google, Amazon. And again, please share the show. Five-star review it. Leave us a comment on any of those platforms. We'd greatly appreciate it. And Daniel, again, thanks for being on the show, bud. Write as many mean things as you want in the comments. Just press five stars. <laughs> <laughs> Got one more shot, I'm gonna make it One more chance, I'm gonna take it I meant it when I said it, now it's time for me to do it I got one life to live, so I put all into it, yeah